Welcome to Shared Ground, where we meet to explore the lands and forests of eastern Canada, Mi'kma'ki, and our relationships to the rest of nature, on the unceded and ancestral lands of the Mi'kmaq people. We talk about ecology, conservation, forestry, and many interconnected issues. One of the main purposes of this podcast is to hear opinions and ideas from many different people. Each perspective will hopefully lead to a better understanding of a bigger picture. I am Amanda Bostland, and I am in search of ideas, practices, and attitudes that offer mutual benefit for humans and all species for whom these lands are home. So the name of the food forest is Neadach, and it refers to the sun coming out. Um, And uh, I guess initially when we were thinking of the food forest and what that means for the um, the community and the school and the students here, um, I thought that name was quite appropriate uh, because it felt like the sun was was coming out on, on Blue Nose Academy with such a beautiful um, forest that the students could could access and be a part of and, and learn relationships through. Um, and then also for the community being able to engage with the students and the school community and all of the connections that were going to be built from it. So that's what the name uh, means and, and why it was chosen. That was Sean Feener, Megama Knowledge Holder, and one of my three guests for this episode. Join me now to meet them. Here we are at Blue Nose Academy in Lunenburg, or Asegadig, at the Food Forest. I'm sitting with three members of the team here. It's uh, a really mild, lovely temperature out, a little bit windy on an overcast day. And we're um, at this beautiful place outside the school. And we're here to talk about the food forest. Neoduct? Neoduct? Okay, you can tell me later. <laughs> They're kind of nodding tentatively. So so maybe we'll start off. Yeah, we've got three, three uh, members of the team here. So if you could each just briefly introduce yourself and maybe say something about uh, your connection to this project. My name is Sean Feener. Um, I coordinate Megama services for the South Shore Regional Center for Education. And um, I guess I've been uh, mostly consulting around inclusion of Mi'kmaq culture and, and uh, knowledge, um, inclusion of some of the guiding principles from the from Mi'kmaq culture, and then also helping with inclusion of Mi'kmaq culture in classrooms, at the school, and um, that's basically it. <laughs> okay, thanks so much. My name is Teresa Quilty, and I've had the pleasure of being a project leader and coordinator for the Food Forest at Blue Nose Academy. Um, and uh, this is, I'm a member of the community in Lunenburg, and um, you'll talk to Catherine as well. Uh, but we conceived this project uh, a few years ago now, and, um, and it's been a real pleasure to sort of see it come from an idea to fruition and to, um, to also approach it very much, uh, not just the process of creating a food forest on school grounds, but also uh, we see it as a community building project. Um, and it's very much about bringing the community together, different people together, the school, the community of Lunenburg, the Mi'kmaq uh, community, and uh, people of all ages and backgrounds. And um, so it's really a pleasure to be part of this project. I'm Catherine Barrett, and I've lived in the Lunenburg area for uh, just over 11 years now. I have three kids that came through the Blue Nose Academy 
from grades two to nine, so very tied to the school. I also have a background in environmental studies and botany, and I have a big garden, perennial garden at home. So all of these things sort of tied together for me in the food forest. And uh, as we'll talk about how the, the specific idea for this project came about through the pandemic, but it ties a lot of things together. So right off the bat, maybe if, if one of you could start explaining you know, something about food forests. Personally, I never get tired of hearing other people describe this type of um, growing food and this um, type of ecological system. I've been interested for a long time and read a lot and practiced a little bit, but yeah, I just get so excited about it. So, so please just like go into as much detail as you want, um, assuming that some people might not know anything about it. And for those that do, we never get bored of it. So if one of you could tell us a little bit about what, what a food forest is. Catherine, would would you tell us about it? Yeah, okay. Well, a food forest goes by several different names, and the idea has been around for a very, very long time. It really means just growing food in a way that mimics the way plants grow in nature. So working with nature rather than trying to... um, subdue it or control it all all the time. So it's also called a forest garden, sometimes permaculture, and Sean can speak to the indigenous ties to the to the original concepts of growing food this way. It's built on connections and growing as Teresa likes to say, growing systems rather than growing individual plants. So all of the plants work together. Did you want to add anything that to that Teresa? I guess for people who think of growing food in uh, traditional, um, what is now conventional vegetable gardens, where we plant uh, every spring, maybe prepare the soil before that, um, and then we tend and weed through the summer, harvest things, um, and then tear it all up and then start over again the next year, um, we're sort of relearning about the ecological impacts of that and also that it's um, it requires a lot of maintenance and human intervention and, and a lot of inputs sometimes to keep the soil healthy. Um, and so some things that I've been really learning about food forests are that it's a perennial way of growing food, uh, primarily perennial plants. Uh, that uh, stay there year-round. So there's trees, there's shrubs, uh, like fruit and nut trees, berry bushes. Um, Then there are all sorts of herbaceous plants, um, like herbs and um, medicines. There's flowers. um, There's all sorts of edible plants um, where we might eat the leaves or flowers, um, and sometimes we eat uh, the roots. Um, And sometimes the plants are there to help each other. They're not things that humans would directly eat, um, but they may also be food for... Um, for not humans, for uh, for pollinators or or other insects or beneficial um, creatures. So um, so we think about uh, the height and levels um, from tall trees going right down into the earth, and how um, that helps build soil and interact with uh, mycelium, and uh, and so it becomes a whole system, and the plants work together, and because we leave them. F- year-round, they get to form this system together and and support each other. Um, And in our case, in our food forest, we're wanting to incorporate um, uh, lots of native plants, um, but we also have many introduced plants, too, uh, that that work well here. And and so we're learning a lot along the way about food forests. Mm. Yeah, I think think food forests and forest gardens in in general really incorporate... uh, 
indigenous concepts, in particular uh, because I am Mi'kmaq, the Mi'kmaq concept of Nedigalimk. And, um, and I think that this forest in particular is a really great example of how um, we are pulling from different perspectives and utilizing Edwaptamonk in a positive way that the community can interact with and create relationships with. Um, and and uh, it's very visual, and it's not just a, a theoretical uh, form of, of two-eyed seeing or, or multiple perspectives. It's, it's a physical, visual, um, kind of tactile version of that concept. I'm just going to interrupt here because Sean Feener and I met for a previous Shared Ground episode where he helped me understand Nedigalimk. I'd like to insert a bit here from that. Sean also mentioned Two-Eyed Seeing, or Etawamtamunk. At a later time, you may like to check out the episode with Clifford Paul and Elder Albert Marshall if you're interested in hearing more. So here's Sean from last summer, along with a cicada. So Nadiglimk is coined a concept, but in reality it's, it's a way of living. It basically outlines how we can survive and how we live within the natural world in a sustainable way and with respect. So there's uh, four main pieces of, of Nadigalimk, pillars if you'd like to call them that, because if without one of them it would fall to the ground. Um, so the first being respect. So we always do everything with respect of all of the beings around us. Um, the second is uh, relationship. So not only within the creation story, but within all of our um, culture, we feel that we are relations to everything around us because we all come from the same uh, the same place. We all come from Usikamu or Mother Earth. So coming from that same place, we are related to everything here. So it's a very large kind of interconnected web that we fit into. And uh, there's not really a kind of a, a you do this and this happens answer it's a it's a you do this you harvest this and we just understand that we will never know the impacts fully um, but we understand that we do have impacts and there is a relationship and we have to be mindful and respectful of that relationship the third um, pillar is responsibility so us as the youngest beings of creation and um, the only beings on Mother Earth that really can um, can create change, a large change that would change the entire Earth, um, we have that responsibility of protection and also of um, of making sure that the, that Mother Earth is healthy. Um, so that's our responsibility because we are the youngest and we are the only ones that can do it, that can create that large change that would impact all of Mother Earth. Uh, and the last pillar is reciprocity. Anything that we do has an impact on the greater collective of beings. And I guess that um, that idea of our relationship with with the natural world implies that there is a reciprocity of a give and take. So if we're taking something, you know, we should be mindful of what we're giving back. We shouldn't take too much because there are so many other beings that need the same thing we do. And all of this concept or way of life is, is extremely hard to explain. <laughs> but, uh, and, and I am in no way an expert on, on the, the concept or the way of life. I just try my best to, to live with mindfulness of that relationship, uh, knowing that 
things that I do in, in the world, the choices I make, do have repercussions, whether they be negative or positive, um, and, and changes in, in the natural world if I am to harvest or alter um, the natural world. So that was Sean speaking about Nedigalumk in Shared Ground, Episode 10. Now back to the food forest with Sean, Teresa, and Catherine. And um, I, I, when you think of the concept of Nedigalumk, you think of um, you know the four pillars being the four R's, the respect, relationship, responsibility, and reciprocity. And when we think of a food forest, each one of those beings in that forest connect in different ways to all the beings around them including humans that are utilizing and, and uh, becoming a part of the forest through relationship. So the food forest in general encompasses Nedigalimk, or I guess Nedigalimk is the basis of the food forest. And um, when we think of just uh, any forest living around us, we truly are trying to mimic those relationships within a space that's somewhat confined, but still creating its own system. So... Um, we're basically creating a, a family in, in a confined space that can, that can exist with or without our interactions. Um, so it's very closely tied to indigenous um, ways of being and knowing and indigenous guiding principles that, that guide our choices and our interactions with the living world around us. Mm. Yeah, I, when I've heard you speak before about how um, humans are obviously part of, of the rest of nature i don't know how you would word that exactly but the so so it just seems perfect like how this group of folks has um brought so many different people so many different humans together to work on this project with all the other beings in the forest and the family that's being created it just seems like such a beautiful um sharing with the world or a different way for people to see and be involved in. Um, this morning, I was looking at some of the links on, on the website, and I was reading that article from the Anishinaabe professor, Dr. Andrew Judge. I just love the way this is said, and I, and I wanted, I guess, to learn a little bit about what you think. So he says, now I realize what my grandma must have understood all those years ago, that there's a place for every being on the planet. And if we honor each other's space, not only will they thrive, but they will help us thrive as well. And he was talking about how much the indigenous food forests of the past have shaped that ecosystem. And he was talking about the Carolinian forests in part of Ontario. But I, um, I don't know that much about how the, the Mi'kmaq way of interacting with the forest over many, many, many generations has shaped the forest now. And if you would, if you know, or if you wanted to comment on how like the human relationships and the way the forests were um, related to shape what we see and what we know as our forests, or at least our healthy forests that are remaining here in Mi'kma'ki. Yeah, well, there's, I mean, there's there's truly not many um, old growth forests remaining within Megamagi, um, especially in areas like Prince Edward Island and, and Nova Scotia, apart from uh, Unamagi. But generally in, in this area, on the eastern um, seaboard, the, the majority of usage of, um, of forest for uh, food sources or medicines or um, anything that would be physical use of, of the forest um, would be very um, uh, constrained around river systems. So 
it would look like uh, different compositions be, uh, very close to the river banks and river systems and then further from those into kind of the dense um, uh, old growth forests uh, it would look like different compositions and you would have different medicines available um, but here being a semi-nomadic people meaning that there were two basically two um, areas that were permanent uh, one on the the coast and one inland um, it was a little bit more of um, utilizing medicines and foods from those areas and the remaining areas were used for uh, uh, migration seasonal migration um, so there was different uses for different areas um, within a given forest or a given river structure uh, which means that the forest structure would look a bit different in those different areas because of the different uses. Mm. <laughs> um, in, in other areas, um, I know that there are trade routes along the eastern seaboard of Turtle Island um, that contain species uh, similar to wild potato, um, some food species that were used to uh, as a food source along the, the trail system, um, but they're not found in, in areas where there, there aren't connecting trail systems. So mm. there are certainly food sources that are available in places that were used continually um, for, for transportation of goods, for trade routes, for um, access into different, different areas of the forest. Um, but the further you go into old growth, seemingly untouched forest, um, the more you see kind of a, a naturalized um, forest. And I don't, to my knowledge, feel that there was any large-scale um, alteration of the forest in, in Mi'kma'ki. Um, and I, I think a lot of the guiding principles and, and ways of being and knowing kind of uh, tell us that we don't really have the right, um, out of respect in our relationship with the natural world, to greatly alter the the system as it is um, because we are uh, one of the beings in that system and the system is only healthy when it can remain as itself and non-altered um, there are certainly many nations across turtle island that um, alter uh, systems in a positive way and create systems that are healthy and can also provide uh, a higher yield for them um, i don't i don't know of any uh, situations in Mi'kma'ki where that was the case, um, aside from potentially um, harvest of, of uh, aquatic species in, in some of the larger rivers. Thanks. Well, you mentioned the wild potato. Um, I think that's Apios americana, I think is the, 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 that's actually a plant that I read about a lot and I was really interested in tasting and growing and I didn't even, you know, I didn't even realize that that was a traditional plant. In fact, one of the regions of Mi'kma'ki is named after that plant, right? Sebag uh, and Agadig um, is a very, very great source of protein and, and, and fiber and, and some of the, uh, the heavy metals. So it's a really good source for kind of the, the trail systems where you're looking for a small food source that's high in, in proteins to keep you going. So wild potato is one that I know that's used um, or, or has been used in the past, not so much um, in, in today's day and age, but um, certainly one that grows very easily and can be brought with you very easily and planted. Um, so it likely would have been one of the plants used along trail systems. I guess I, I was also, I heard you folks, I guess it was you two, Catherine and Teresa, that were talking on the Coastal Villages uh, radio station about the food forest. And um, one of the things you said in that interview, which I really liked, and I think you spoke to this a little bit earlier about some of the reasons you started the food forest. Teresa, you said that it needs to have value and meaning for the whole community. And 
yeah, that sounds like it's of utmost importance, but not something that everyone always considers when they're starting starting a new thing. And I just wondered if we could maybe maybe go kind of go around and if you each wanted to say something um, about some of the different folks you think you've reached or who have been involved in this project. I think virtually everybody that we spoke with in the town of Lunenburg, you know, over the period of a year, had never heard of a food forest before. It never took people long once they heard a description of it to see their faces light up and to, and and see people say, "Oh, that makes so much sense!" And it's really interesting and it's exciting, and they just never thought of it, um, and get excited about the idea and and really want to see it happen. So. Uh, the process of talking about it for a long time before it physically began to take shape um, was a journey in itself of, I think, sparking people's imagination to think differently about these ideas of local food security, how we grow food, where our food comes, and then how we come together to uh, create those food systems and how we could come together to do that. Um, and different ways of growing foods. So all of these ideas uh, that we put out there, that we ourselves were learning about and exploring and still are, um, have somehow sparked a connection for so many people in the community. And so we have had dozens um, of people support us in this project through donations, through in-kind support, through um, joining our work crews, uh, you know, signing up to come and haul seaweed <laughs> with us um, and haul it back to the school grounds here so that we could uh, put it into the mix of, of the soil that we were amending to plant our trees. Um, people who signed up to uh, move logs and then cut them up so we could put those logs in the ground and dig holes and uh, and all of these kinds of heavy physical um, activities that we did. Uh, we had to put up a fence to um, to protect from the heavy predation of deer in the area. That was a long conversation we had. We didn't want to put up a fence, but we decided uh, we had to. And people who were people who would give us uh, fruit trees and berry bushes said, "I won't give them to you unless you put a fence around them, because the deer will just eat them, and it'll all be for naught." So I think one of the important connections that we've made is just with people who got excited about this idea, who for whom it was new and exciting, and they could find something that made sense for them. Um, and, and that also included um, older generations of people who who didn't come out and help us with the physical labor, uh, but wanted to support the project in other ways, um, even baking cookies for the people who are out working, things like that. Um, uh, because older people also really intuitively understood the importance of uh, for students, for young people to have this connection to nature and to each other through food and growing food. So, um, yeah, so the web of connections that um, have formed through this project has just been so delightful and, uh, and it continues to be delightful and, um, and it's wonderful to not exactly know what's going to happen next and who you're going to meet next. That's a really fun part of, of this web that we're creating. Mm. in the community. I forgot what the question yeah, was. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> How about I talk about the kids? 
Talk about the kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to me, that was a very surprising and delightful aspect of the food forest because um, I saw that they understood the principles and the, and the ideas and the value of it um, right away. And in a way that I think kids in my generation wouldn't have or weren't taught to. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, they understood the plants working together. Um, and they could e- easily name ways that plants could help each other, which seems, I mean, if I think back when I was in grade five, that was a completely foreign concept. I wouldn't even have known how to put that into words, but they seemed to, to grasp that and understand it and take such care in planting um, the plants, like really a loving approach to planting mm. the plants and and, that, and the critters that they found in the soil, if, if they found a a worm or something, it wouldn't be, oh, gross. It would be, oh, look, I found a worm. Take care of it mm-hmm. and put it back. And so it was really, it was really inspiring and gave me a lot of hope to see the gen- that generation just take so much care and have just a, an intuitive grasp of why this is important. Mm. Yeah, we, we uh, in June, invited uh, the classes to come out and... Um, help plant uh, what we call fruit tree guilds, uh, so groupings of plants around fruit trees. I think within 24 hours, uh, it was fully subscribed. We, we offered, um, I think, 11, t- 10 or 11 different time slots, and uh, we had 12 classes come out and about 250 students participate, um, mostly from the younger grades, but some grade sixes as well. And so it was really wonderful in addition to what Catherine said about um, them just grasping these concepts so intuitively and easily. But it was also really fun to see how each student would take something different from it. And we shouldn't assume as a teacher or as, you know, as an educator or guide what the lesson is because uh, they each had, they each took something different from it. One thing that stood out for me was uh, how some of the students really enjoyed uh, when we offered for them to smell some of these plants that have um, wonderful scents like lavender, chives, um, or we have a walking onion, uh, oregano, and so on, um, and we invited them to rub the leaf and smell it. And some of the children were just blown away by this, and they had never done it before, and they really wanted to keep doing it. Um, so they were getting a lot from the sensory experience with the plants, and you could see there was a, a pretty powerful connection there. Um, not all students did that, but for some, that was really powerful. And, you know, we could have easily not done that, um, but there it was, and a powerful experience was 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 had by some students. So, So that was just a good reminder to me to you know, to not necessarily know what's what's going to be learned. Mm, yeah, I love that. I think I'll answer the first question first and then go to the, the students. When I think of what the any of the elders um, shared in, in terms of knowledge or, um, or wisdom or uh, anything, really, in, in regards to this project, I think of simply the lived experience I have through interactions with my elders and, and the guiding principles that they share through uh, story and through, through experience and through um, just certain teachings that, 
guide me in my ability to interact and and learn those teachings uh, for myself. So I think of things like the uh, the guiding principle of Nedigalimk, and I think of um, elders who have shared with me uh, ways in that I can see the relationships I have with the world around me and the beings around me, and I think of how that's incorporated in this in this food forest and how that will then translate into the classroom um, at Blue Nose and and having students come through uh, come through the food forest and, and learn for themselves through actual ex- experience what those relationships look like and you know as they go through the grades at at blue nose and and grow older they can witness this food forest grow with them and form a really strong relationship with it and in turn better understand their relationship with the natural forest around them and the the natural world around them so um when i think of their anyone's contribution i think of just the the contribution of everyone to to give a better experience for the students at Blue Nose um, and community members here so that they can really physically see that relationship in themselves and the world around them rather than it always being a a theoretical and a story told that doesn't really connect with with the individual. So um, I I think this food forest is is at at the base for Blue Nose um, is a relationship builder for the students and, and the world around them. Hmm. Yeah, I guess when I when I first heard about your this project or when I've been learning a little bit about it or I came to that open part of the open house day and it was just so it's just so wonderful to have yeah like experiential hopeful things happening where people can directly get involved and meet one another and meet yeah, the other beings, um, you know, the non-humans as well. And it just seems like such a an antidote almost to eco-anxiety. Um, anytime we can get involved with other people for something that's actually beneficial and hopeful. And I just feel like things like this are such um, such a gift to the community and such a gift to the children who, yeah, I love how you said that, Sean, are going to grow up with this forest and, and see it and them and the relationships between everything like evolve over time. Like that's just one of the most amazing things. And I know it's no accident. And you had mentioned um, earlier um, a little bit, you might want to talk a little bit about like how, how this began. I don't know if you want to say anything more about kind of the history of this project or the motivation or something along those lines. And then maybe we'll just take a little walk into the food forest. Sure. Um, I think for us, for Teresa and and I, um, the concept or the idea to do this came about during the pandemic when things were quite grim and uh, like grim on a level that we hadn't experienced before. And we would um, take walks together sort of together and apart <laughs> and um, just talk about how we're going to get through everything just the pandemic but everything else climate change and biodiversity loss and so many things and we kept came, coming back to the idea of community in um, meaning the community of people around us but uh, our relationship with all the beings and that, that that is what was going to get us through, um, not the government and not the businesses and not help coming in from somewhere else, but a strong community and a, a strong network here locally. And so um, 
yeah, we sort of always gravitated back to that idea. And then through a, another mutual friend, Jennifer Constable, I think she was the one who actually <laughs> mentioned the term food forest first. And yeah, the idea took off from there. I seem to remember us saying something like, well, this sounds like it would be a hard project to pull off. And, um, but it might be worth it if, if we could get enough people interested. And we all, and, and we had, it had to be worth it to us. We wanted to do, um, Catherine and I wanted to work on something that was going to, um, selfishly reconnect us with members of the community because we were feeling very isolated mm-hmm. um, and ineffective and the anxiety happens when you're worried but you're not active and so we wanted to take some practical positive action we wanted to actually physically do something that was creative and constructive and it seems like it's both um, a solution if things go badly and it's also a prevention and um, and that's just in terms of the food that it might produce. Um, but also, I think having a healthy, resilient, connected community of people and all ages and different kinds of knowledge is so critical uh, in all times as prevention and as solution as well. So it just checked every box we could think of. And so we said, yeah, it's probably worth the effort to see if we can pull this off. And it really does seem to spark all sorts of people's um, imaginations, like you were saying before. Yeah. And I noticed you chuckle there, Sean, when she said something about, I hope we can pull this off, or this seems like, (laughs) is there anything you want to say? (laughs) No, I I just, uh, I feel like there were a lot of um, unforeseen, not so much roadblocks, but barriers, certainly, um, in terms of like, just availability of, of resources in that like human time <laughs> in the beginning and then uh, being able to find um, available contractors to do some of the larger scale like uh, uh, groundwork and yeah I think it was uh, there were so many barriers that I think everyone just kind of you know to get over them they everyone just didn't look at them as barriers and and uh, really saw the end goal and if if the team didn't do that i i don't think that the uh, the food forest would be planted today <laughs> so um that's reminding me that it might be good for folks to know for might be interested in trying to start something like this in their own communities are there you know some things that you would suggest to other people wanting to try to start a food forest at a school in their community you've probably learned a lot that could be useful for others yeah, I think a lot. Um, so uh, we started talking about this in the fall of 2021. On on the one hand, it seemed like there was a lot of talking going on before we actually did anything, which was, I mean, it could be criticized or it could be frustrating, but it was actually really necessary. Um, Sean was, I think, the first person that we spoke with after the principal of the school and many, many other people. Um, and I think all of that was is essential to, to get all the different points of view, um, so many different ideas about how what the food forest is and should be. And uh, it would have been a completely different project if we had gone in in a couple of months with some backhoes and planted some trees. I think all of the, the networking and the talking 
conversations are, are critical before any planting happens. Yeah, and all that extra time, you know, the delays and, and things, just actually, in every case, we learned something new. And so it has been an evolving project. It will continue to evolve. And, um, and yeah, it's been a really nice balance of um, having some goal and direction, but at the same time, letting it emerge and change um, and being flexible. And so we have now a fruit and nut orchard that has been installed in the spring of 2023. And, um, and we have plans to expand um, the food forest into another section um, this fall and take back more of the, the lawn, uh, the mowed lawn area um, to make it more biodiverse and productive. And, um, and we have a plan for that, but it's, uh, but I, I feel like I'm learning to be more comfortable with um, not knowing exactly how it's going to go and, um, and just trusting that uh, we, we now have a really good uh, group of people and we continue to um, attract more input. And, and as long as we keep listening, and um, and responding, uh, we seem to do okay, and so that's uh, what we're going to keep doing. <laughs> Sounds like a good recipe. <laughs> yeah, I would just say, um, you know, how drastically important it is to have community involvement and and community engagement in the initial phases, and to be able to kind of keep that momentum going with the community um, and and further, even when the project is, quote, finished, <laughs> unquote, uh, <laughs> it, it's never really finished because it's a continually growing forest that's always going to be changing somewhat and, and, and growing. So um, when you when you first finish that initial, um, you know, ground moving, first plants in the ground, um, that's not the end of the community involvement. That's, mm. that's kind of right in the middle where, um, you know, you start to see some of the plants being planted and then, and then you can continue to consult and grow your ideas and the plans around the forest and what can be uh, added that has a benefit to everyone. Um, mm. So I think, you know, the involvement of the school here right next to the food forest of the greater community in Lunenburg um, and then just consultation with many different partners um, in, in the greater community is what really made this project move forward and not get stalled into a point where, where it just became uh, uh, not feasible to, to finish. I just had a, an image pop up in my mind as you were saying that. This is probably an obvious <laughs> analogy, but um, well, when I came to see it for the first time and found out that you'd only just like prepared the ground and planted it a couple of months before that. And it was incredible because it looks like, wow, it's already a, a forest. It's already a little community there and it's not very old at all. And so then hearing about everything that happened ahead of time, it's like, oh, all this nourishment, you know, and mycelium were like connecting underneath the, <laughs> the ground. And then suddenly this like beautiful mushroom pops up and it looks like, oh, this mushroom just came out of nowhere. But it was like the ground had been set for it to, to flourish. That's what this is making me think of. Yeah, there's so many analogies, right? Mm. Just an, another aspect of of this project that, you know, if there are other communities uh, or groups that are thinking of doing something like this, um, I would say that um, one of the beautiful things about that I love about nature is that um, it's very forgiving also. And, um, and it also, uh, you know, it, it does let us know when we're 
maybe if we're getting it wrong. Um, and so, yeah, we try not to use the word wrong, I guess, or mistakes too much. But mm-hmm. um, but uh, we did, uh, we, we have uh, consulted with a lot of knowledgeable people and experts and we're very fortunate on the south shore of nova scotia to have so many knowledgeable people i mentioned rosemary lonis from helping nature heal uh joined our project last winter and um she's another person who made it possible for us to move forward we we would not be we would not have what we do in the ground without her help and guidance um she gave us um uh, some some guidance on sort of the technical aspects of um, operationalizing this and and you know so how do we sequence all the work and get it done? Um, who are some people who can help us? She has all these vast networks of landscaping people and resources. Um, and and I noticed that there were sometimes we had these great meetings with her and she was so helpful, but I found myself afterwards being paralyzed with fear <laughs> that I was afraid to take the next step or actually do the thing that we talked about and I voiced that to her at one point and she just looked at me and kind of shook me and said it's okay you can do it and uh, it's it's okay and um, and I did kind of shake myself out of it and realized afterwards oh that was great that I noticed that, that I was paralyzed with fear because um, I think we can do that when we're trying to do something new um, and we and we we, we can overread <laughs> We can over uh, study something mm. to the point where we feel that we're I'm not expert enough. Yeah. And one of the wonderful things about this experience and so many people who have gotten involved to help us um, has been that, yeah, we're all learning some some things, and there are there are um, there is science, there is traditional knowledge. Uh, there are tried, tested, and true methods that we can use. Uh, but at the same time, we don't have to be experts to plant plants, to work with nature, to grow food. These are all things that anybody can do. And the children went out and they did it. And um, and with just a little guidance. So um, I think that's another important thing. If you're, there are lots of resources out there. Do do some homework. Do ask for help and guidance. But at the same time, um, go ahead and don't be afraid because um, uh, nature is wonderfully forgiving. Mm, thanks. That sounds like a really important reminder. Yeah. And not only are you collaborating with one another, but with the plants and the other creatures too. Yeah, we're collaborating with nature and that's yeah. uh, our biggest partner of all. At this point, Teresa and Catherine took me into the food forest. The audio isn't so great, as the construction noise seemed to increase at this time, but hopefully you will feel transported into this fledgling forest and school and community project. And just before we take you into the food forest, I'd like to get this out of the way and ask for some financial support for Shared Ground. I'm just one person doing this podcast, and if you enjoyed this episode and can spare even a few dollars, that would be a big help in keeping this podcast running. I certainly would appreciate any amount you may be able to offer, especially in the form of a monthly donation. I'm trying to find a way to make this a sustainable situation so that I can keep these stories and ideas coming your way. You can find a donate button wherever you are listening to this podcast. And to those who have made a donation in the past, I want to tell you how much I appreciate that, both from a monetary and morale standpoint. All right, here we are walking in through the gate of the food forest. 
Hello, and food forest. <laughs> it's not very big. How, how big would you say this area is? It's about 2,000 square feet. 2,000 square feet, but it looks under. like you can fit a lot into that. That's right. Yeah, we've got, um, we actually have some um, temporary residents in here, uh, plants that are in pots. And, um, and so we've just moved them here for the summer. We did have them over in another, a different area as in our nursery previously, but for the summer they're here. Um, and then they um, will go into the next phase that we're putting in um, in the fall, which will be uh, a native, more of a native Wabanaki or Acadian forest. Um, and so we've got lots of, it's, it's a, a different ecosystem than what we have here. So this one is a fruit and nut orchard and we fenced it and it's a very regular rectangular shape. So we thought, well, let's start out with something that's the most conventional of all that um, um, that will let people sort of gently step into the idea of a food forest. And mm -hmm. so we have about 10 fruit trees here and we're going to add two nut trees um, when we're able to source them. We've got the beds all ready for them. And, um, and around each fruit tree uh, is a guild and the guild is a group of plants that are, um, that provide services to each other and support the fruit tree. Um, because fruit trees are kind of domesticated plants and they need humans to care for them. Uh, they're highly hybridized and grafted, and, and, uh, and I'm just starting to learn about them myself, but they, um, they're not native plants, and so they're vulnerable to lots of pests and, and uh, diseases. Can we go to one of the guilds, mm -hmm. and maybe you can walk us through mm -hmm. um, each of the plant and what their functions yeah. and interrelationships are, yeah. and get yeah. a feel for how cool it is. Right. So we're looking at a pear tree right here and you can see there's quite a few pears on it already which is amazing considering it just arrived in its in this home it's yeah. in the spring right? in May in May wow in May yeah so it's looking really healthy which is great and this golden spice pear tree is surrounded by uh, what have we got we've got an elderberry shrub um, some highbush blueberry yep a hascap and then we've got a daylily here, which a lot of the kids were really surprised to learn that um, you can eat. So the shoots in the spring are delicious, nice crunchy, throw mm. them in a stir fry. The deer enjoy them in the spring and, um, and so we can enjoy them as well. Uh, <laughs> Hence we, the fence. That's right. Yeah. Uh, we have nasturtium, which is also in beautiful flower right now. So, so sorry, just to pause, we're kind of looking at different layers within the food forest, but right yeah. now, because it's so new, they are almost mm -hmm. like the same size, the yeah. shrub layer and the herbaceous layer, right? That's right, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and over time, um, it will take on its own shape and fill in, we hope, and so you won't see soil in between. Uh, there's rhubarb. We've got walking onion, which um, is a perennial onion. Um, you can eat the entire plant, the, the bulb that's in the ground, the stalk, and uh, it sends up flowers and those become bulbils and they get heavy and lean over and take a step and create the next plant. So that's why it's called a walking onion. Mm, the kids right. love that. I bet. And uh, we've got oregano. Uh, what else have we got over there? And strawberries. And so we've got different services provided by different plants. Some of these plants are sort of a spicy herb or um, strong taste like the onion and those tend to repel some pests. Um, some of them, like the flowers, will attract pollinators. Comfrey, which helps draw up nutrients from the soil to a level that the other plants can access. Uh, so they each provide a service to 
the guild to each other and in particular to the tree and really help support that fruit tree. So, um, so yeah, this is uh, something that we planted with the students' help involvement and, uh, and we were able to talk with them about plants being friends and need, needing friends and needing to not be alone. So um, this is something that's new for many of us because we're accustomed just thinking of planting a tree in the middle of your yard and uh, and leaving it alone but um, here this plant is surrounded by lots and lots of companions as well as under the soil there's we inoculated with mycelium and there's there's uh, pulpy wood under there and seaweed and all sorts and compost and leaves and all sorts of things that will really um, help get that web going underneath for the root systems and and you're really changing the kind of challenging the story of um, competition too like this cooperation is is also important or maybe more important than competition and in, in the natural world yeah and that's a fabulous lesson to learn isn't it so how they help each other with through cooperation is is great yeah and uh and so yeah we don't need to be afraid that they're all going to fight each other <laughs> they're not mm-hmm. they're helping each other because you're choosing plants with slightly different niches too and different root habits. That's right. And as I said earlier, you know, I think we did sweat over this before we got things into the ground. And I looked at so many charts about plant companions and things again, became paralyzed by fear of not getting these, these guilds perfect. Um, And then at the end of the day, we looked and said, well, what plants do we have? And they all need to find a home and we kind of worked it out. And so are these perfect guilds? I don't know, but um, we'll see how they do. And we're going to learn from that. So, you know, it is to some degree also a bit of an experiment as mm-hmm. nature is, right? Mm-hmm. And you see how they work. And we'll find out um, too, as as they evolve, as the trees get bigger, they create more shade. Some plants may do better or less well, uh, depending on whether or not they like shade. And things will find their way to some extent. So uh, we'll learn from that whole process too. And, and this is something that the students can get involved with over time as well, recording their observations mm-hmm. in the forest uh, through the seasons, but then also year after year. Yeah, I can really relate to that being bogged down by too much information. I have the two, the edible garden uh, forest textbooks. There's like a volume one and two. I don't know if you, you've probably seen those, but like oh man, I really <laughs> spent so much time reading those before I ever had a chance to like plant anything anywhere and and then yeah you just have so much information to draw and it's easy to be like oh but I don't quite remember this and this and what if this anyway it was a real inspiration for me to come because I feel like I have a lot of theoretical knowledge about this sort of thing I've been excited for a long time but I haven't you know still haven't really planted guilds and when I came here and I saw some things right away it sparked my like oh yeah I can I have this plant at my at my place I can move it to another place and you know that could help this tree and it was just seeing it in real life really helped me remember oh yeah I should get around to that step where I actually do it (laughs) that's right (laughs) yeah and that and remember that the plants are also working will work with me once I once I get started right (laughs) they're doing the growing they're doing the main part of it I could add I like that you mentioned this challenges our ideas of competition versus cooperation but I think it also challenges our ideas about what is a weed and Mm. what isn't a weed Mm -hmm. and what um, and also what what's a nice looking garden <laughs> and what isn't so this is actually beautiful i don't can't imagine anybody so would say this isn't nice looking but once everything grows up it'll be crowded and um things are not in rows there'll be things that will die back while other things are blooming 
and we'll just let that happen because that's you need those different things happening at different times and I would imagine you can already see that dandelions are coming in through the mulch and that's okay too mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we'll probably let that happen and I imagine some clover will creep in here and clover is good for the soil too so yeah, it just does challenge your the view of what is a garden what is a forest um, what is nature and all of those all of those things yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and once you start thinking I guess about what what the different plants are offering one another as well as our, ourselves and some some of the um, benefits to humans are indirect because they're helping another plant that we mm. want I think then you can almost see every plant as a helpful plant mm-hmm. like that like I love seeing dandelions in just my regular garden <laughs> because I know they're pulling nutrients up from yeah. deep down and they're helping and yeah. every time their leaves die back their roots die back and yeah, but that's a real shift in perception, or mm-hmm. I guess, yeah. Uh, I think this approach to growing food um, and plants as well, it's intentionally designed to become low maintenance. So we're putting a lot of work and resources into installing it. Um, we could do it more slowly and less expensively, but we're doing it this way because we're kind of in a hurry for the kids. You know, we yeah. want the trees to grow quickly while they're still young. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so a forest takes time. So, so we were putting a lot of resources into installing this. And then over time, it becomes more self-managing than, say, annual ag- agriculture certainly is. Um, and even most manicured gardens or yards would need a lot of maintenance to sort of control them and keep them in a certain state that, um, you know, sort of very human led. Uh, And this approach is much more, uh, once it's installed, uh, it becomes nature led and uh, nature managed, uh, so that it's managing itself. And, um, and so it's not an unmanaged space. It's, um, it's just not human managed so much. And so we, we, we're supporting it. We're letting nature take the lead and we'll support uh, what nature needs to, to thrive in this setting. The calendula were planted by the, the youngest students, right? The grade ones, I think? Yeah, just, uh, yeah, that's right. And they were so tiny, we they, weren't sure they, they were, were going to make it. Two. So it's nice to see that they've come up really colorful and they'll be, be nice for the kids to see when they come back when they come back beautiful yeah. and the cilantro as well um was they just they just put seeds in the ground they were so excited and and when they were done their their little calendula plants they're like can we do more can we do more and i had a big jar full of coriander seeds that from my own garden that i'd saved so i just give them handfuls and they put them in and we didn't know but look at them they're fabulous <laughs> so you're yeah, letting nature amazing. and the children take the lead it's <laughs> exactly very, very neat exactly yeah oh yeah and i wasn't even it's thinking really about well. it until just now that the, the kids some of them may maybe have come here and seen it over the summer but lots of them left and will yeah. just be back and be yeah. like so yeah, so excited so to come excited. back and see what they planted they were so tiny yeah, it's really interesting to see. And some things that I thought would have grown faster haven't. And some things are just, yeah, blowing me away. Like, this stuff is just amazing. Mm. Um, but it's also the year that we're having, right? <sighs> so uh, the last five summers were so hot and dry. And now this summer, and then we had such a, you know, a record drought this spring leading up to our planting. We just felt so nervous about putting everything in the ground. We thought, is this a big mistake? It's, we're never going to be able to keep it moist enough. And then, lo and behold, the weather changed, and we've had um, so much rain now. So, 
we actually have households and people signed up for weeks of the summer to come in and water through the summer. And mostly they haven't had to because nature's been doing it. But mm. it's still been, uh, you know, an opportunity for people to come in and check it out. And we really have been trying to get the word out to people to just come in. It's This is a public space. Right. This is for anybody to come in. It's it's a community garden. Whether they live right in the town of Lunenburg or not. Yeah, anyone. anybody can come in. We just say close the gate when you go out so the deer don't come in. But um, but all humans are welcome. And we really, we really want people to come in and explore it because we just feel it's so inspiring. And I don't know how you couldn't be delighted at this. So <laughs> we, want to, we want to share that delight. And now, as a fun end to this episode... I'd like to play in super speed, Teresa reading a list of the numbers of people who have been involved in the Neadach food forest to date. 370 subscribers to our newsletter, over 50 supporters of our project, 45 work crew, 21 worker bees, 13 people from the town of Lunenburg, over 30 people from the school education and health, over $20,000 raised in cash and over $10,000 in kind. In June, we had 12 classes come out to plant fruit tree guilds. That's over 250 students. In June, we had Open Food Forest Day, and over 100 people came. And we have over 500 people in our contact list. Wow! <laughs> that's, in our, that's in a year. That's pretty good. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Shared Ground. To learn more about the Neadach Food Forest at the Blue Nose Academy in Lunenburg, or to offer to volunteer, you can find their contact info in the show notes, which you can access wherever you're listening to this podcast. Also, I wanted to mention that one of my first Shared Ground episodes features Rosemary Lonis, who you heard helped out a lot with this food forest. To hear more about the work she does and her interesting philosophies and methods, you may like to look that episode up too. Until next time, fellow humans.